one of the most perceptive observers of the human comedy, certainly the American scene, uh, as anyone around on about, Edmund White. And his book, is, his most recent book, is called States of Desire, uh, His Travels in Gay America, Dutton of the Publishers. And it, it's a study of more than the gay life. It's a study of our life as it is lived today. We hear the word gay a great deal, gay people, gay community. Uh, how much do we know, we, those who are not gay, know about the life of a gay person in our country, really? Edmund White has come through with a quite beautiful book, I think. It's, it's uh, called States of Desire, the subtitle, Travels in Gay America, Dutton, the Publishers. And it's, as Richard Sennett says in one of the tributes to it, Edmund White has an anthropologist sense of community and a novel, a sense of character. By the way, M Mr. White had written uh, two excellent novels before he wrote this book, States of Desire, and continues Senate. His gifts have produced a unique book. States of Desire shows the different ways gay people live in different parts of America. It destroys many stereotypes about gay life and does so in a witty yet serious way. Edmund White has written a travel book, as such books were written in the 18th century, a sympathetic account of human differences, and I think Senate, uh, to me, caught the impulse of this book. And it's, it's your, your travels through different states, and as you see them, as the outsider. And you make a reference here about talk shows, television, Anita O'Brien and her crusade, how the word gay has become part of our vocabulary. Yes, I sometimes feel that uh, deplorable as some of the movies are, for instance, about gays, and some of the discussions are, Nevertheless, I think that even with the movie, let's say, like Cruising, which gay activists have found, quite rightly, an unattractive and unfair picture of gays, nevertheless, I sometimes feel that the bottom line, the ultimate result of all this is good, because everyone is talking about mm -hmm. it. This thing, which was so long a secret that I never even heard mentioned as a, when I was growing up, is now uh, part of everybody's vocabulary. It's, it's on, it, uh, everyone knows yeah. the word gay now, yeah. and, and it seems to me that every time a portrayal of gays uh, appears in a movie or on television that another hundred people recognize what they are. And this is good, I think. When you were a little kid, you're in the 30s now. I'm, I'm 40, I just... 40, are you? Mm -hmm. When you were a little kid, raised here in Evanston, uh, the theme, the subject of homosexuality was hardly discussed openly. Never. I, I, I never heard about it. I, I remember my first contact with it was reading A Life of Nijinsky. And I was quite puzzled about what all this was. I mean, what, why this strange relationship between Nijinsky and Diaghilev? And I felt drawn toward it instantly. I mean, I felt that somewhere in here was an answer for me. Yeah, I remember uh, on this program, oh, how many years ago, when the subject was being discussed openly, Henry Weimhoff, quite marvelous guy, is a consultant in a gay uh, center in New York. And Henry was just coming on this very program. He said his, his, mother, his mother, father listening doesn't want to stun them or shock them. And he wants them to be proud of him. And he, he said, I have marched in Selma. You know, I have marched against the Vietnam War, but never did I speak for myself. And now I do. And it was a tremendously moving event. He speaks of his discoveries. Gay, uh, the word gay, you know, we think, is it new in our vocabulary? Is it used now? You think it's gone? It goes way back as far. I think as it does. I mean, the uh, the English can be very silly about it. They, uh, I recently contributed an essay to a book called *The State of the Language*, and one of the editors, an Englishman, uh, objected to the word "gay." He said, "You've ruined this perfectly beautiful word. I can no longer say I went to a very gay party, uh, and how dare you do this?" But I tried to point out to him that the word "gay" goes back to the 17th century at least. And it was originally associated with uh, prostitutes, and it meant loose or immoral. And I think most of the words in the gay vocabulary are connected with uh, the, the lingo of prostitutes. And I think it, that may be because the only gays who could talk openly about mm -hmm. being gays were those who lived in, in a horror's milieu, in a loose world, an immoral world. And a lot of the gay slang, words like trick, or cruise, or number, or all these words are, are all part of uh, the horse slang. That's right. Well, of course. The outsider, the, per the one who is not respectable, therefore gay. You know, in many 
child ballads, the old Elizabethan ballads and pre-Elizabethan, these long ballads deal with certain women that call Lady Gay. Mm -hmm. Now, the Lady Gay is not necessarily a whore, but the Lady Gay is someone who has, has some, she gets her comeuppance, did something wrong. In one case, uh, the wife of Usher's well, I remember that song. She let her kids be too free, and uh, they died, and they came. The ghosts came back to haunt this lady gay. Mm -hmm. So it's doing something wrong or being something wrong. That's right. But I think that it's it's a useful word for us. Uh, I think because it's a a word that, first of all, when you hear it, at least it, most people don't know the origin of it, and when they hear it. It's the only word that refers to homosexuals that doesn't have sex somewhere in it. And I think one of the burdens for gay people is, and lesbians is that, uh, is that they're always being defined in terms of their sexuality, their sexual acts, whereas, of course, it's really an affectional preference. I mean, it's, I mean you, you don't, when you talk about a husband and wife, you don't constantly bring up their bedroom behavior. You're, you, you assume there's a love there. And this is a thing I think that, that gay people want other people to understand. You know what you're saying now that I think is terribly important? When someone is outside what the majority considers the norm, there is an obsession with sex or something True. not in a puritanically oriented society as ours. With that person, black people. That's right. Sex. Remember the comment of Earl Butts? This stupid comment. Well, he represented a great many people. Uh, I've seen a, I've seen uh, uh, one one fascinating study that showed that that a very large proportion of the American people assume that gay men are all sex fiends that if they cannot have their way with men or boys they will rape women. A large group yeah, of people yeah, believes yeah. this. That is that they see them as sex fiends. And the funny thing I think is that is that a lot of people have a, a lot of straight people or people who haven't thought about it much carry a strange double image that seems to be contradictory in their minds. On the one hand, they see a gay man as a sort of limp-wristed, weak, weakling, and sissy. On the other hand, they see him simultaneously as a powerful rapist who can overcome anyone's resistance and, and who's a sex fiend. In your book, of course, this is a theme recurring for the, the one who is the stranger and certainly someone who is outside as a stranger is to be looked at with suspicion and with fear. Isn't that so? In international affairs, it must come to us domestically as well. I think that's true. Yeah. And I think that, that a lot of people who haven't been around gays uh, are, are just made nervous in the way everyone is uh, by foreigners, by strangers. Also made nervous by the fact that I'm sure that every human being biologically has two strains in them, you know, and the fear of, hey, of course, now we come to the big thing about us and the danger to our society, the machismo image that may destroy us militarily, of course, in every way. The macho guy has a certain fear in him, doesn't he? I have a sort of odd theory I've been cooking up. I haven't quite figured it out, but I, I've been thinking recently that, that the reason people are very afraid of sadomasochism or make fun of it, for instance, is because I think our society is really sadomasochistic. That it, that that is that uh, between parents and children, bosses and employees, the government and the people, there is a constantly a relationship of power and authority. So, and they don't want this drained off and wasted in mere sex, because in sex it becomes explicit and conscious, and one can understand it, and it's expurgated and exorcised, and so you're free of it. And some of the sweetest people in the world are people who in the bedroom do S&M things. And I think in the same way that it could be that that maybe our society is really homosexual and that's why we hate homosexuals. Mm. That is, we have a bunch of guys who are, have the old club tie and, uh, and who are running everything and who relate to each other in this male, male, male way. It's a very male-dominated world and homosexuals are making this maleness explicit. I love explicit. that. I love that theme, male bonding. You know, yeah. Male bonding. I love that. That us guys together. <laughs> of course, it's very funny. I it is very funny, that. and particularly trying to justify it as being natural, as part yeah. of nature. I mean, that's a sign always of the right. Yeah. I think. I yeah. think conservatives are always invoking nature. In your book, you travel from uh, different states, different parts of the country. The fear. Uh, we wander about this. Los Angeles, San Francisco, San Francisco, we associate with gay power, don't we? The weird power, power. And there, of course, you speak of tremendous fear and, of course, the recent case of that incredible uh, non-sentence of 
a man named White who murdered Harvey Milk, who was a gay official there, and the, and the mayor, well, Mayor Moscone. He got off lightly. I mean, Five light, years. Outrageously lightly. Five years, yeah. And somebody, a public employee who had committed a very similar crime on the same day, I think got a sentence of 30 years. But, I mean, it was incredible. The uh, But the subject, the fear of the, uh, for want of a better word, straights, who seemed pretty crooked to me, but uh, that fear comes into it, does it not? I think so. I sometimes wonder what are they afraid of. I think what they're afraid of is a challenge to the the traditional family uh, setup. And I think that one reason that the fear is so intense now is because the traditional family setup is weakening. I mean, more and more people. I just saw a poll just recently that where a, a huge group of Americans said they thought that the family was in trouble. Family's in trouble, of course, but for reasons wholly unrelated. I, I think uh, so, absolutely. Uh, gay is coming out of the closet. I think uh, so, but I think that, uh, that, I don't think that people, I think that, for instance, Anita Bryant, I can't believe in her heart of hearts that she really thinks that a gay teacher, no matter how attractive he might be to his students, is going to lead those students into being gay. However, I do think that a teacher, I've been a teacher, uh, I th and I found this was true in my yeah. own experience, that if you're honest with the kids about yourself, including your sexuality, if that subject happens to come up, it doesn't usually. But if you're honest with kids, then they, they respect that, and then they become very honest, too. Uh, and uh, they do see uh, an adult whom they admire who's leading a different kind of life, who, who, and th that you know, you know, gives I, them other possibilities. I recently uh, spoke at a Mattachine Society gathering in honor of a very great woman, Pearl Hart. And uh, Mattachine Society, for those who don't know, is, is an older group of homosexuals. And I spoke there. Um, as a tribute to Pearl, who's a very great woman. And there were several people there, uh, men I know, guys, and this guy lives with his friend, his lover, and his son is there, who had been married to this woman. And it's a, a heterosexual little boy who's very, but there's an honesty there. His mother and father, of course, were there too, mm -hmm. uh, the grandparents uh, of his little boy, who are pr proud of their son, you see. Mm -hmm. And there's a certain sense of openness and honesty I found so rarely in other gatherings. I think that does happen. I, I, I had the privilege of. Uh, of being able to have my nephew live with me for two years when he was a teenager, and uh, uh, he, I think that, that, that it was a good experience for him, it was certainly a good one for me, and uh, his uh, girlfriend also mm -hmm. came and joined us, and so suddenly I had two yeah. kids on my hands, and uh, it, was very, it was very interesting, but we were all very honest about, yeah. about our private yeah. life, and, uh, but we also kept our private lives yeah. private. Yeah, I'm thinking your book, uh, some might call this a Baedeker. Uh, it's, it's, it's a study of different communities and mores and through the eyes of you, the chronicler. A very excellent writer, by the way. Thank you. And, but a gay chronicler. And he describes cities. We'll come to something else in a moment about, uh, about growth of people. You know. L.A. You open with Los Angeles. And you, you speak of this as a, a city where they, how it's more easy than the East. But as more casual, almost almost uh, custard-like casual. Yes, I think sometimes, as I tried to point out, though, I think sometimes the casualness is a pose for some of them. That that many of the people, particularly in the movie business, are working like the devil. But the contrast is that in New York, someone will say, uh, "Oh God, I'm working hard," even if he's really a lazy guy, but and hasn't done a thing. But in in L.A., you're almost obliged to say, "Oh no, I'm not working. I'm laid back." Though you have yeah. four telephones yeah. and your desk is covered with work. Right. But it, the, it's, it's considered a fashionable yeah. pose to be yeah. uh, laid back out there. They, they don't use the, the cliché phrase that drives me nuts, have a nice day, I, it comes out of my ears. <laughs> they have because you say every day is a nice day. Yeah, that's the curse of it. <laughs> that's the curse, isn't it? Yeah. And also you say somewhere, the copy of something, the facsimile of something, is more valuable than, than, than the original. Yeah. Oh, yes. Yeah. Uh, I, I visited one guy who had... Uh, <laughs> Uh, bought all this antique furniture and then had it copied a size larger because he uh, was a bigger man. Yeah. So he had all of these this uh, uh, Louis Couture's furniture and Louis Seize furniture, but but blown up. Mm -hmm. And the copy was what was beautiful. To well, him. how would this contrast from from a gay standpoint, or from a historic chronicler standpoint, which is you uh, to New York City? Well, I think that it's easy to poke fun at L.A., but I think that what's interesting is that some of the most powerful and some of the wealthiest gay men out there are extremely active in the gay community and have done things like they have a first-rate gay uh, center, community center, where they provide uh, help for 
gay prisoners who've just been paroled, for, for lesbian mothers, for people who are, have problems with alcoholism. I mean, after all, there's a whole range of problems yeah. here that gay people have, and they feel more comfortable in dealing with those problems with one another. Well, anyway, in L.A., these uh, big, rich, powerful guys are willing to, to come out and give their money to their own people. And in New York, that is not true. I mean, it, by and large, it is not true. And I think part of it is because I have found that people are willing to come out if they don't live in the same parents where they're, uh, in the same town where their parents live, and if they have, if they have a lot of economic security. I mean, people who, who are still surrounded by the people they've known all their lives mm. are fearful of coming out. And people who, who have to work for a living and who are in a conservative business also are unlikely to come and out. And also in New York, uh, so much it, uh, there are so many specialties. The, the communities are so many and varied in the world of the arts and the world of industry and business that there's almost a departmentalization, isn't there? Plus a terrible blasé knowing yeah. quality. I mean, New Yorkers, uh, I, I think I say in my book someplace that New Yorkers package ideas, but they send them out to the rest of the country. They don't consume them mm -hmm. themselves. Yeah. I mean, like Women's Liberation will get a big send-off from New York, and Ms. Magazine will be published there, and most of the authors mm -hmm. who contribute to it will live there. But do they really believe it? Mm -hmm. I mean, they're constantly producing another fad for so the rest of the country tomorrow. You point out here, and you have a sequence on Portland and Seattle, that a person can be more of an, in, an outsider or more of an individualist there than he can in New York. I think so. And I, I think there is a real tradition in the Pacific Northwest of this kind of rugged individualism. It's the last of the old America. And uh, it's very attractive. I mean, and people have a funny uh, uh, set of, of beliefs that are quite mixed. For instance, they will, uh, last year, they voted to uh, uh, keep an ordinance that is pro-gay, but at the same time, they voted to uh, let the cops uh, have a bigger and worse gun that they would yeah. carry around them. So, I mean, you don't see a clear pattern of what yeah. we would call liberal or conservative yeah. uh, uh, voting. You see uh, people making up their minds for themselves. Just on that subject, liberal conservative voting, this is a theme that uh, possesses me. It inter interests me very much. Uh, the gay community, generally speaking, old and young, is there a difference politically? For a long time, I felt my own experience and associations with gay people whom I know very well. Some of my best friends are. Uh, yeah, that's right. Uh, that the older ones were rather conservative because of a fear. And that is, and That's what Kinsey now, found. Now, what, oh, back, did, I didn't back know, then, yeah. what, mm -hmm. what are your thoughts? Are there changes as far as politics? I think so. I mean, uh, of course, gays are, make up a very strange minority because they, the, they're not born gay. I mean, that is, they're not yeah. born into a gay society. They become gay at some point in their life, and it can be 16 or it can be 60. And they can be white or they can be black, they can be rich, they can be poor. So it's, a, it's, it's not, in any sense, a homogeneous group. However, I do feel that the single biggest factor in homophobia, the hatred of homosexuality, whether it's in straights or in gays, is age. That people over 40, I'm right there on the cusp so I can speak with some knowledge a Janus-faced way, but I think people over 40 tend to be very uptight about homosexuality, and people under 40 tend to either be indifferent to it or accepting. This is today. Today, no. I mean, this wasn't so, say, no, a generation no. ago. And I think gay liberation has made a tremendous yeah, difference. Yeah. Of course, you, I suppose you associate gay liberation with black liberation, uh, women's liberation, feminist movements. For that matter, Grey Panthers. Yes, uh, that's right. There is. There are. There's a, obviously a relationship. By there. the way, I think this is the unique gift of America to the world. I think we're so terrible in politics in this country and so dumb about most issues. And you can watch television for a year without ever hearing the word socialism mentioned, for instance. There's no real discussion about issues, mm -hmm. except in this one area of lifestyles or uh, whatever you call it. And that seems to be what yeah. Americans are good at. It's, and, and, and now, in Europe, all these gay groups are springing up. Um, I keep seeing more and more French novels that are published from a gay point of view. All this has come from America. They look to America as the leader in this one area alone. Edmund, you're hitting something very fascinating, hardly discussed. There's an enlightenment when it comes to style, more and more of this, and there's still this a Neanderthal aspect politically, the military expenditures, the them and us, the build up, the number one. There is a strange split here, isn't there? It's true, it's, it's, it's I mean, sometimes I almost feel hopeless about America, but the only thing that encourages me is this, that I feel that if we have examined and re-examined 
such basic things so deeply part of us as our sexuality and our gender and things like that, that then that surely must teach us that the world, that the status quo is not acceptable, or at least the status quo can be changed. It's the possibility of change yeah. that's so important for people to think that the system need not be this yeah. way, that uh, medical care could be changed, that food could be distributed better, that uh, we needn't have a, a, a growing disparity between the rich and the poor, and we needn't have such a gigantic Pentagon budget. I mean, in other words, maybe some of these issues can be looked at by Americans who I think essentially have been radically depoliticized since the 1950s. Again, this is, as you're talking, of course, I said, naturally, you have a point of view that's there. Uh, I feel a very enlightened point of view. Others may say, this guy's a radical, this guy's left. It's interesting, as you're talking, you somewhere toward the end, the epilogue, it's a marvelous uh, self-criticism of you in your book. I have already seen this in the book. You're saying from snobism to socialism, use the word socialist in a broad sense, not, not, not to worry about Russia, so we talk, which is a very horrendous example of it. Yeah. But talking snobism, uh, you, that aspect in many people, gays and straight, is really a sense of the insecurity and fear, isn't it? I think so. I think that I, uh, I think basically I'm a fairly shy person. And going out and writing this book, uh, someone who had lived in New York in a rather quiet writer's life and suddenly having to go to gay bars and shake hands with people and, and start chatting people up, it was very unlike me. And I think that sometimes I retreated into a snobbish attitude about Kansas City, places like that yeah. that I visited, and I hated it in myself, yet it does creep into the book. And I don't know. Finally, I accept it. I say, well, that's just the way I see the world. That, that, but I think you're right, that there is a self-protective yeah. aspect. And I had a hard time reconciling that with my political views, which I think of as being you know, very broad and human, humane. And how can you be a socialist uh, uh, or a libertarian even and, and have this uh, kind of uh, yeah. a snobbish attitude about the way somebody's pants are cut yeah. or something like that. But I, I think, I hope I'm growing away from that. This book, States of Desire, then, is also a self-discovery on your part, too, isn't it? Very much so, very much so. I, I think, for instance, coming back to the Midwest and seeing it after having been in California and having traveled up and down the East Coast was very interesting experience for me because it kind of made me, this will not please your Chicago listeners, but it kind of made me angry at, at the Midwest because I felt that, th that the status quo reigns here more than any place else I've ever known. I mean, that, he that here people really, th there's a kind of avoidance of discussing issues usually. Uh, I know when I first moved to New York, having grown up in the Midwest, I was appalled by the way people argued with each other at dinner tables. And, and I, I thought, you know, because I, I'd been brought up to say, oh, yes, that's nice. Even if somebody said, you know, I'm, I'm a Nazi, you say, oh, uh-huh, that's interesting. That kind of bland Midwestern acceptance of anything and the refusal to confront anyone in a friendly way, it can be friendly, but there was no avenue for that kind of discussion of issues here. And I think when I came back, I realized that, in a way, my own development had been retarded by living here so long. I, I know this is not music, too to your listeners now, I'm thinking, ears, well, since you mentioned Chicago before mm -hmm. we take the break and there's a theme we've got to hit uh, something Orwell introduces but it involves age and adolescence and it specifically concerns gay people uh, Chicago uh, you, you hit you, I ask you about hinterland so-called which is a put-down phrase itself right. uh, Kansas City and Denver and, and Salt Lake City and Mormons very fascinating your discoveries uh, Chicago then in the world of gay people, where does Chicago figure? How, how well, I think there's a burgeoning gay movement here, but I think it's been slower to catch on here than in some other cities, and I think that may even partly be the influence of Daly and the whole Chicago way of doing things. I think that that the machine really killed off grassroots politics in this city, and I think that's also true for gays, that, they, that uh, it, it's been very slow to develop, and I think also it's a city that is very work-oriented and that People don't go out much during the week. Uh, they go. It's a mainly a weekend kind of town for primarily a blue collar city too. In that's contrast also true. To other more white collar towns. That's true too, and I think it's. Uh, I think it is harder oftentimes for blue collar people to have the financial security to come out. I think. I think that, and I think in certain ethnic groups too, particularly those that are Catholic, 
uh, there, there, there's a much higher uh, uh, power of repressiveness against homosexuality. People suffer a lot longer in coming out. Something you said a moment ago, do not have the economic wherewithal uh, to come out. Absolutely. See, that's, that's, that economic plays a role here, does it It not? sure does. It sure does. I mean, someone who's a tenured professor can come out a lot easier than a guy who, even a guy who's working for a conservative corporation. If he comes out, he may not be fired, but he's certainly not going to rise. We come to more. We're talking to the book is a I think it's a brilliantly written one, but more, you're, you're also an investigative journalist. It's part of it. You're in states of desire, and my guest is Edmund White, who, by the way, is a brilliant critic as well. Travels in Gay America, Dutton the Publishers, and we'll resume in a moment after this message. Resuming the conversation with Edmund White, and using his book, States, State, that's a great title, by the way, States of Desire. I like that. Oh, thank you. <laughs> Coming back to that the theme, this often comes up. Growing up, you know, the phrase used that as a retarded, as a hanging on to adolescence on the part of gay people. Would you perhaps use this Orwell quote? It's a good thing to take off from. On page 66 of your book that deals with San Francisco, there's the quote. Uh, is putting you. In the past, why don't you read this, and then okay. we'll take off from there. In the past, as George Orwell has reminded us, the bulk of humanity passed almost instantly from being adolescents, amorous, high-spirited, open to experience, into being toothless, downtrodden, self-sacrificing mom and dad. Only the aristocratic few escaped this sudden transition and prolonged the period of introspection, dalliance, egocentricity, physical beauty. Even so, this grace period ended in one's early 30s, in the United States, and especially among gay men, this period of adolescence is being extended for the first time in history into the 40s, 50s, even 60s. It has become a way of life. Let me hasten to say that by adolescence, I mean nothing derogatory. I'm not asserting, as psychoanalysts once did, that homosexuals are arrested in their development, that they refuse to grow up. So now this leads, of course, to a million and a half questions and thoughts, doesn't it? The question of growing up, some because you you are of course you say you are not saying that they haven't, as this very unimaginative a psychiatrist would say. Right. Well, I think one of the things that you see in the animal kingdom is that the 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 farther up the evolutionary ladder you go, the more is present something that's called neoteny, which is the preservation of of youthful characteristics into the adult member of the species. So that, for instance, a chimp, a grown-up chimp. The face looks somewhat like a baby chimp, whereas in a lemur, the adult looks quite different from the baby. But anyway, I, I use this notion of neoteny to, to suggest that, that the period of adolescence and childhood is a period of play, and a period of play is one in which you can safely experiment with new behaviors. And uh, I think that, that you see that in, in gay people, that, that uh, uh, an openness to new fads on the simplest level, but also s to new concepts, new ways of relating to each other. I mean, one of the things that you oftentimes see among gays who live in large urban centers is that they may not have a lover that they live with. They may have a, a whole succession of, of sexual partners, and someone looking at them from the outside will say, gee, those guys must really be lonely. But the, what they have instead is something very much like adolescent friendships. That is extremely intense. Sexless, but 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 romantic friendships. That is friendships that really matter to you and that go on year after year. And these elaborate networks of friendships you oftentimes see among gay people. Now this can be called adolescent behavior, as though that's bad. To me, that's one of the most attractive things about adolescence. And why shouldn't we have large networks of friends? But that leads to a big question. That's what I must ask you. Is there more fear? of growing old. We know that we, uh, America, United States, thanks, well, as seen by its TV commercials and the movies, the cult of youth is terribly important here. The fear, that's why the Great Panthers are battling the way they are. The fear of growing old. Is there more intense fear among gays than among straights? I think certainly that was true in the past. Uh, but I, th I have the feeling, and I may be deceiving myself, I hope I'm not, I have the feeling that my generation and those just younger than I those of us who went through gay liberation and who who have learned to to redefine ourselves. I mean, I was in psychoanalysis for 12 years trying to go straight and be cured. And after all that anguish... Did you say, why don't you get married? 
Oh, sure. <laughs> I was engaged twice. Find a nice girl. Yeah, sure. <laughs> but I think after all that baloney, and having finally realized that what I thought was neurotic was re- uh, and personal was really a large social issue, mm. and that I needn't adjust myself to them, but that we could turn things around and begin to have some self-respect. It seems to me if we were able to do that in such a major area of sexuality that we're, we're not going to put up with that in terms of age either, that, that uh, we're going to try to redefine that too and find ways of liking ourselves as older people. I think that's the main issue. It's not, do, will you be able to find some young person to like you? Uh, the question is, are you able to like yourself as an older person, including liking sexual partners who are also older? I mean, a lot of guys will say, gee, these young kids today don't, uh, uh, they're so ageist, they won't accept an older man. But then they only want the young kids. Mm -hmm. They never want each other. Mm -hmm. So they're the ones who are ageist. Mm -hmm. I mean, and I think that all of that has to be looked at and re-examined. That's this, this is, we're we're, we're touching no man, I love the phrase, no man's land. We're touching the twilight zone here uh, in conversation. The matter of age, as it is with heterosexuals and with homosexuals, age, the fear of the wrinkle. You know, mm-hmm. we know, and but I, I assume that this has been so for the outsider more than it is for the majority group. Well, I think one of the things you have to realize about gay men is that first and foremost, they are American men, and only secondarily are they gay. Now, if you look at the average straight American man, he wants a young woman. And uh, he, and I think a lot of the problems that gay men have is because you have in this case, two guys, each of them expecting the other one, not to play the woman's role sexually, but socially. To accom- I mean, in other words, you, you see a gay couple, and the one guy wants the other one to move with him when he, his business forces him to move, yeah. to adjust his life to him. You have these two strong male egos. But I think that the, 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 the fascination with, with youth is characteristic of American men in general. Ah, that's it. So it's the cult of American women for that, being the little girl. The guy and the little girl image. You know, Simon Signore comes along a room at the top and knocks that into, you know, into. Thank into God, theology. yeah. As a matter of fact, I was in a soap opera years ago, you know, called Helen Trent. I played oh, villains. Yeah. The subtitle is Can a Woman Find Love After 35? A rather academic question these days. Absolutely. See? But it's not unrelated to our conversation. What's interesting is with gay people is that a number of the gay m- magazines of, of pictures of, of good looking guys that people buy that the covers now all show men over 35, whereas in the past they showed pretty boys of 20. And what's happened is that the, the, the masculine ideal of gays has shifted away from the pretty, blonde, hairless, cutie pie boy to the older, more rugged-looking man with a beard, could be bald, could certainly have a few wrinkles, but who, who, sort of the Burt Reynolds image, you know, that seems to be the new image. And it's interesting how that has shifted. Yeah. And I think that's part of what I've called in this book the masculinization of gay life. I think one of the things that happened after gay liberation is that gays no longer bought the old stereotype of themselves as being sissies, and they began to really go whole hog into this business of being super masculine. Almost the other way. Almost the other way. Maybe too far. But it was a necessary... The big problem isn't that. The big problem, it seems to me, is the machismo image of our society and how it may kill us, really. I know. To be the strongest guy, number one. Well, certainly we see it in the world of the military, don't we? Absolutely. And all this business about national honor, national pride, we've got to go, those guys have insulted us. We continue to see national politics on the level of two bullies facing each other Mm -hmm. in a bar. A cartoonist whom I like, uh, you know, admired very much. It, it, here he is again. I think retarded in this issue. He had the image of, of we need the Teddy. We need his Teddy Roosevelt. Of course, he meant carry the big, big stick, stick, tough, rough, and continue. You see this more and more in guys whom I respected for a long time. And, was, and a lot of people are getting in this warmongering yeah. mood, aren't they? Well, that yeah, that comes back to our subject, by the way. It's not unrelated to it, is no, it? No, it isn't. It isn't uh, at all, and I, I, I think that uh, it, I think the nature of the, the male personality is something that people do have to analyze more. Certainly, the feminist critique of it has been terrific, and gay liberation has to be seen as something that has come out of the feminist movement. I don't think they're identical anymore. Mm-hmm. I think, but but I do think that gay lib owes a lot to in the movement. In your self-critique and your epilogue at the end, by the way. Uh, Edmund White has traveled to all communities and quarters in Texas. Uh, the Texas situation is very interesting. And of course, in, in uh, uh, Salt Lake City, Utah, we've got to talk about that. 
uh, New York, of course, and New England. But toward the end, you, you say, in Silkridge, you didn't touch on the lesbian theme or, or a gay black, so you, you touched more or less the gay white man. I did, and partly because that's the most visible yeah. group. Uh, also, uh, well, uh, the reason I didn't treat lesbians, I, 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 I've been attacked for not, not treating lesbians, but I don't know how anybody imagines I could have done it, because, I mean, was I supposed to go to some town and go into a lesbian bar and be the only man mm. there? I mean, also, I think I'm enough of a feminist myself to feel that that there, there should be a sequel to this book. Of, By the way, you just did, uh, uh, during the week of this conversation with Edmund White, we're talking about States of Desire. I think it's a marvelous book, Travels in Gay America. You did a review, and a very brilliant review, for The Nation on a book uh, edited by the, the brilliant French observer of the human, human situation, Foucault, that my publisher put, I'm happy to say, mm -hmm. dealing with a uh, study of a transvestite of another time. And you're talking there about, you make a comment in the beginning which had a, about when a woman is involved, it's not as serious when a guy is involved. So the lesbians are not considered the threat in a sense that a male homosexual I think that's true. I think in our society that we only take sex seriously when a man is involved. Uh, there have been studies that have shown, for instance, that when women are perceived by heterosexuals as being lesbians, the status of the lesbian maybe even goes up a little bit. I mean, for instance, you could walk into your neighborhood bank and see a vice president of the bank who is a, 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 a mannish woman. You would not see a, an effeminate man sitting in that vice president's chair. And the thing is, is that I think that, that the, the, the the nature of homophobia, the hatred of homosexuality, really reveals something deeper in our country about our attitude toward men and women, the sexism of our society, because gay men are perceived as becoming more like women. That is losing status. And they are very threatening because they are seen as somehow throwing away their divine prerogative of being a man and choosing perversely and willfully of being more like a woman, whereas lesbians are seen uh, conversely, as being more like men, therefore they rise in status. Aren't you talking about power? Power, absolutely. That the male, the male white middle class guy is the powerful man. He's the symbol. But male and power, female and uh, subordinate status. That's right. Is what you're absolutely. talking about, power. Uh -huh. But it's nonetheless lesbians we know in some communities have suffered a great deal. Oh, I'm not denying yeah. that. And, and I also think that, that women in general suffer in this yes. country uh, and they, they're paid less. I mean, they're, they're feminist problems yeah. that lesbians face. Yeah. I mean, the problems that all women yeah. face. And I think that in certain communities they also... But that observation of yours about uh, power in the male and uh, a lesbian perhaps can't achieve more status than a male homosexual, that is considering that she's a woman. That's right. Is a is, is and one of the things, I, when I was in Minneapolis, I interviewed a man who runs a, a, a gay community center there, and he has group therapy for married men who are trying to come out and be gay, and in some cases getting a divorce and redefining themselves entirely in the gay lifestyle. And I said to him, what is the single biggest problem that these men face? And he said, loss of status. Status. That's what these guys can't accept. If they, if, if they, when they come out, they get, I mean, as long as they're known as a good family man, it doesn't matter what they're doing in bed. People don't even really want to know that much. The, the guy is defining himself socially in his neighborhood, on the job, as a heterosexual man. Therefore, he has high status in our society. But the minute he tells his fellow employees or he is known by the neighborhood people to be gay, he loses status. And that's a, a real blow. And a lot of these guys hold on to their marriages a lot longer than they should for their own happiness or the happiness yeah. of their wives. It comes back to power. But then let's uh, talk a little about your experience among the Mormons. This interest and aversion therapy. Well, you, why don't you set the scene? Well, uh, when I arrived in Salt Lake City, I, I went to this marvelous place called the Sun Tavern, which is a, has a kind of a terrific atmosphere of, of a lot of uh, outcasts, all the outcasts in that society, who happen to be, I think, the most fun people there. But it is mainly a gay bar, but uh, gay men and lesbians are there. And I began to hear these horror stories, and they would tell me what was going on in that town. And the Mormon church... Uh, definitely does not accept homosexuality. And if homosexuality, and they're usually talking again about male homosexuality, that's the thing they're focused on, not lesbianism. But if a man is discovered to be gay, then he is given two choices. Either he's excommunicated, 
from the church, which is a big deal for a Mormon because if you remember, a Mormon is not only linked to the church in this life, but he's linked to his entire family throughout eternity. They are married and bonded together forever and the family unit endures in paradise throughout eternity. So for someone who believes in this faith, he's really casting himself out for all time from his family to be excommunicated. So that's one choice. The other choice he has is to submit to therapy and the, the therapy of choice at the moment is uh, aversion therapy and what happens is the guy is told to go to the porno store buy some pictures of guys that he thinks are sexy and bring them back and then he's strapped to a chair and uh, uh, and given electric shock when he is shown these pictures of attractive men then he's shown pictures of women and, he, and nothing happens or he's rewarded and this goes on and on and on and some of these guys are so desperate to cure themselves quote unquote so it's Pavlov in reverse it's right that's yeah. right it's yeah it's behavioral conditioning and uh, in reverse though here the bell will ring uh, when you see the woman in other words you get the shock when you see a guy that's right yeah, yeah. and uh, some of these people have cures quote unquote that are usually temporary, alas. And what happens is that they think they're cured, they get married, they have children, and then the homosexuality reemerges. And, uh, and then, of course, everybody is unhappy. The, 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 the man feels guilt-struck when he, when he cheats on his wife. The wife knows something's wrong, but she usually hasn't been told what it is. The kids know there's some conflict between the parents. This is a terrible yeah. situation. Yeah, we could use the Mormon situation, I don't mean to, but it's so clear as a metaphorical case here of the woman and the homosexual, just as is aversion therapy and the, ma and the male homosexual is put down, so too the woman could never be uh, a pastor and it could never be a preacher. Oh, you know, that's right. The recent and, case. And remember, course, only yeah. two years ago were yeah. blacks allowed into the church. And so that's, so there again, using that as a case, all three then, yeah. all the outsiders. So we come to that again. That's right. To talk about inversion, here it is then. I mean, that would, I mean, I think the Mormon faith represents very much the old values of America. I mean, sp uh, President Kimball of the church, the head of the church, has written a manual that I read about marriage in which he tells the wife not to work. She shouldn't work. She should stay at home and be a good housewife. In other words, the old traditional roles are completely endorsed and reinforced by this church. It's one reason why I think many Americans who've been unhappy in uh, in, in, in trying to cope with all the changing values mm -hmm. of our time, yeah. oftentimes find happiness in the Mormon church. If they can fit in, it's, I'm sure, terrific. It's just buzzing away like a beehive. Everything is ordered. Every moment of your day is, is when, planned for when you by the church. Explain uh, the growth, the burgeoning of so many of the sects, religious sects. Sure. Whether the Moonies, or whether it be for that matter, and the most horrendous case, uh, Jonestown. The sects. That's Hare right. Krishna. Uh, when there's something when the rational is not doing it. No, Incidentally, I don't want to speak out too strongly against the Mormons. No. I mean, I don't want to qu quite put no. them in the same boat with a lot of these really crazier sects. I mean, I think the, there's something very beautiful about the church, and I certainly and I and I certainly know that that the gay Mormons, most of them, 99% of them, want to stay in the church. If I could could speak to President Campbell, I would say, keep your church exactly as it is. Those people want to live that way, fine. But so do your gay members want yeah. to live with yeah. you uh, in a fraternal way. Yeah, in, in and why won't you accept them? Why are you destroying these people's lives? You're not lives? talking about Mormonism. Not, we're, we're talking about something as a metaphor for the That's rest. Right. Absolutely, not yeah. that alone. So we come to one of the key questions that comes up. You deal with New York, and of course there's New York. <laughs> and we come to theater, we come to the arts, and continuously we hear this, uh, gay control of the arts. This comes up, doesn't very often. Doesn't oh, sure, it? absolutely. But I think it's a it's a it's a paranoid theory that is not very well founded in fact. I mean, for instance, the New York City Ballet uh, is headed by George Balanchine, who's as heterosexual as they get. Uh, the, the publishing world has been uh, and still is dominated by heterosexuals. For instance, I had novels with gay themes circulating throughout the 60s. Nothing could ever be published of that sort, though I was writing for Time Magazine, did for eight years, and, and making my living as a writer, so presumably I was a capable writer, but nobody would touch the stuff. Only after gay liberation, and then quite some time after gay liberation, did it occur to some publishers there might be some money in this market, and they began to publish some gay b books with gay themes. And I would meet gays who were 
were in the publishing business years later who would say to me, you know, I read that novel of yours in the 60s, but I, couldn't, I didn't dare speak up for it in an editorial board meeting because people would have thought I was gay. Hey, that's, let's deal with There's that. There's a lot of homophobia let's among gays toward each other. We come to that fear, don't yeah, we? Yeah, that that's fear. right. Homophobia among gays, too, because of that fear of speaking up, because a macho... Uh, society of mores would put you down, would punish you. Absolutely. It's very much part of the movie industry. I mean, we think of Hollywood as being quite bohemian and free and easy and so on. It isn't. It may be, but it's only under extreme wraps. A friend of mine, a young actor who who was a Broadway star and went out to Hollywood, when the day he arrived in Hollywood, his agent said to him, no bars, no baths, no boys, and go to every party yeah. with a girl. Yeah. And that, those are the rules. And no one must ever know you're gay. And, and so. it's true that there are very few big stars who are known to be gay. If once um, The public doesn't want to see a gay man get the girl at the end of the movie. The, the, the public doesn't want... Uh, and, and, but going on about this business about gays controlling yeah. uh, yes. taste and the arts and so on, one of the interesting things that's happened in fashion, for instance, is that uh, since gays have emerged and there's now... a a clearly labeled gay look, gays are no longer the leaders of fashion in America in the way they used to be. In the old days, European designers would invent some kind of fancy suit. Gays would be the first to pick it up. And then uh, television personalities, and eventually it would seep down to the rest of the American public and to the heterosexual men. But now, because gays are so explicitly labeled gay, what happens is gays will pick up a style and it stays only gay because no straight guy wants to look like a gay. He doesn't want to be mistaken for gay. So you're getting, uh, uh, so even that, that one role that gays used to play in making taste, they no longer yeah, no do No longer play. come to power. I guess you can't get away from economics, can you? Mm -mm. I, I it runs we, through we this whole thing. It comes back to that phrase I just dislike so much, bottom line, which yes. is the key. I you, heard it, myself saying it No, earlier. no, I didn't mean you say I'm at the, it's used because it, it's basically a buck. That's yeah. what it means, making That's a right. buck. We come back to that again. Because the funny thing is, in social society, so-called, there's an anti-gay feeling that, so there is, that is, there you have it, don't uh, you? Absolutely. I mean, uh, unfortunately, so many societies that are so-called socialist societies are uh, very puritanical. Something about that, I think oftentimes homosexuality is considered by revolutionaries to be a decadent mm. and aristocratic vice. And this is so unfair to the millions of working class gays, you know. Uh, but you know that uh, when Harrison Salisbury and other observers were in China, they asked about uh, they asked about homosexual Orville Shell asked about homosexuality. Oh, no such thing here. Doesn't well, exist here. That's what they say. <laughs> I know. Came back. You see, one thing. It's, and when I was a kid, I'd see the female impersonators and and the. The females that would do with the strong known actor, well, I was no longer a kid, but Betty Davis was taken, Tallulah Bankhead, Ethel Merman. Certain kinds of strong women performers, isn't it? Strong women. That's right. Absolutely. It's, it's an interesting kind of uh, conflation of, of two different elements. I think the, 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 the gay men. Uh, who do drag in show places, that's very different from street drag, which is a different thing altogether, but, but the ones who do show drag, and it's mainly now based in the South, you see an awful lot of it in Florida, for instance, I was in Florida all fall, and gee, it's the drag capital of the world, and they have a kind of Miss America contest of their own. But anyway, they, uh, it's true that they oftentimes do go for these very strong women, and I think it allows them to express some of their anger against their oppression and some of their feeling of mastery <coughs> in the world, but in the guise, in the very safe guise of being a woman. It's mm. a kind of strange uh, mm. double message mm. that's mm. being sent here. Yeah. It's not the pretty, weak little girls uh, or the... Uh, who, or even necessarily the sex vamps. It's not the Marilyn Monroe's who are being imitated. It's it's these big strong women. Betty Davis. Betty Davis. Yeah. Ethel or, or for that matter, the singers. There's, uh, there's the Earth Mother. I think of Mabel Mercer. Yeah. Uh, the Earth Mother <coughs> is part of it too, isn't it? Yes. I I don't know too many people who've imitated Mabel Mercer, but uh, but, no, but, I mean, but they but, love her. But I mean, she's I mean, a her gay her following. Oh, absolutely. We come to that. But I think also she's she's an interesting case because she is a black woman who is incredibly sophisticated. So it's as though she found Amelia in Paris yeah, yeah. that accepted her and that made her the toast of Paris. Yeah. And I think this is, coincides with a gay fantasy of, of, I mean, when I was growing up in, 
in the 50s when I was first coming out, I kept meeting all these gay men who had these aristocratic pretensions, who would have velvet and chandeliers. That was the notion. And I think behind that fantasy was the idea that somewhere, probably in Europe, there exists a society that is very aristocratic and very sophisticated, and they will accept me. And I think that that's the Mabel Mercer You know, there's so much we have to talk about. I'm thinking we had about five, well, this is ridiculous, five minutes left. We're just beginning. Now, Edmund White, and uh, by the way, I, we could have another conversation, but I want to ask you one more thing. States of Desire is his book, and uh, Travels in Gay America, the subtitle, Dutton, the publishers, and it's really, it's a study of our country, really. Through your eyes, a very perceptive observer, the word camp. Now, we think of Susan Sontag, which has, who's brilliant, has invented it, but camp has always been associated with gay life, hasn't it? Yes, camp. yes, and it goes back a long way, sure. And Susan Sontag had a very special definition of it, which now, because of her brilliant essay in Partisan Review, has sort of dominated. But in the old days, it, it meant n- not just her sense, which was uh, a camp sensibility. That is, uh, loving things that are failed glamour. That's what she meant. Is that is that it, she she realized that camp is not vicious. It's basically sympathetic. And what you do is you go to see some god awful old King Kong movie, and yet you see that it has these heroic, big time ambitions. They fail ludicrously. Mm-hmm. Nevertheless, you sympathize with this. You try to help that failure become a success through your uh, imaginative participation with it. Well, that's the sense she defined. But the other sense was to. Uh, uh, make a, a, a for very effeminate gay guys to make a big scene on the street, and they'd say, "Stop camping, girl!" You know, and the idea was mm-hmm. that I, th- I think it was to uh, just go out and scream and let everybody know you were gay. And you every once in a while, the the lid would and go to off. Recognize you too, you know, in a sense, to make a scene. Not to think of Quentin Crisp, yeah, and his the brilliant Quentin Crisp. At the end, he's, "I'm really an entertainer. I'm on the stage. Someone who's been put down, who's." very gallant and very courageous as he has been all his life mm-hmm. and with an incredible understanding of the others doesn't he i think so but to be an entertainer he's really saying look at me it's which like is the call of anybody i think particularly in in that era in the 40s and the 50s that uh, most gay men had the choice of either disappearing, of just uh, hugging the walls, trying to become a shadow, be unnoticed. Or if you didn't want to do that, the only other choice yeah. you had was to, was to yeah. smear your face with lipstick and say, here I am. Yeah. And I think there, that, 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 that the, the old-fashioned camp was, was refusing to take the oppression of the society lying down, was going to make a fuss. How different is it from Jack Jefferson, who was Jack Johnson, the old black champion, placing here I be, as indeed, what better case than Muhammad Ali? Yeah. Here I be. That's right. Like it or lump it. And yeah. so it's the gay person saying that is really speaking of a human impulse. That's right. It? I think so. Absolutely. And I think the problem was before gay liberation is that very few people had a way of going the next step. That is, they could make that statement, but then they'd be overwhelmed by guilt. They had very little solidarity in the community. They had no no, no way of seeing themselves as oppressed people. I can remember, I was in the Stonewall Ride, and the first, and the, uh, the first time somebody said gay power... For those power, who don't know, this was the first time gay uh, people in New York City. There was a famous place called Stonewall, right? Right. And there was a that a police a re- raid, and the gays, for the first time, didn't run away, but they resisted it. And and we were all standing outside the bar and uh, and chanting, and somebody said, gay power. And we all laughed, because we had never thought of ourselves as a minority group in the way that blacks were a minority group. But suddenly, we stopped laughing, and it dawned on us that we did have a legitimate cause, that we were a real minority group, because we were oppressed in the same way that other minority groups have been oppressed. What a way to end this conversation. This has got to be the first of a number, I hope. Edmund White is my guest, and uh, let's have some more conversations. I mean, And the book is States of Desire, Travels in Gay America, Dutton, the publishers. And anything you have to say as we uh, a postscript? Um, uh, well, I'm d- just glad to be here. And I, w- when I was a kid growing up, I used to always listen to your program And, and uh, when I was a teenager, and uh, I... It's very exciting to be on your show. So I've helped contaminate young America. Yes, you did. (laughs) (laughs) Thank you very much. Thank you, Stutz.